Welcome once again, one and all, to this Halloween edition of the Greg Proops Film Club located here at the most desiccated of all film theaters, the former silent movie theater located in the morbid tennis shoe district here near the antique meat area of the Fairfax portion of what used to be Los Angeles and is now just swirling pools of alkali with douchebags driving white cars passing you on the right. Your life is forfeit in this town because no one has any consideration for anyone, whether they're walking or driving. It's a town full of predatory fucking lizards who every small incremental victory to is the most important thing in their venal lives. Once again, we gather here to celebrate the one craft that lifts them out of the unbelievable green muck and mire that is the profligate greed and hideous fucking sexist decision making that is the film industry. We turn our eyes toward Japan, the poisoned land across the horizon where we may face Godzilla in our lifetime because of their errant ways. In other words, they had a tsunami that knocked over a nuclear power plant. I'll explain everything I'm talking about here in case you've decided to go quiet during my award-seeking film podcast. On a dread night like this, on a day in LA when the weather was indescribable, 79 degrees and oppressively nice. It's these kind of October days that stir the soul and build the doubt within your subconscious that everything you've tried to achieve in this town is not only for naught, but is a hideous joke thrown back in the mirror of your soul at the end of a long night of cold lava rocks sliding down your crotch. Success? Is that what you came for? Not this fucking time. It's October in Hollywood, and everyone's thoughts turn to their car payment. Should I have bought that coupon book at the car wash? I don't know if I have nine weeks in me. I'm going to explain this joke for people who don't live in car world, which is the rest of the goddamn universe. In Los Angeles, people buy coupon books for car washes so that they can carry on getting car washes at a discounted price into the future. So they've done two things. One, rely on their own sense of self-sufficiency that somehow Hollywood will provide and they'll still be here in that amount of time. And two, the delusion that by keeping their car clean, somehow they're holding it together. (laughs) Cheryl Crow said, all I want to do is have some fun. That's not allowed in Los Angeles. Take a look at the faces of the most successful people when they celebrate and see the pain etched inside them. A thousand crimes against humanity being paid for every nanosecond as their synapses fire like cocaine-induced triggers across a lizard's reticulum. (laughs) When they visit Hawaii during the Christmas holidays, they have their nanny go out to the pool at 7 a.m. and spread a towel out for their area. This is a town where people retire from their feelings. Your feelings aren't necessary anymore, they're a hindrance. There's only two things, yes, red pens, (laughs) 
Special effects tonight are lavish, by the way. I don't, if I could describe to, this, to the people listening in rapt attention out there in Mercury Theater land. The setting is an old movie theater in Hollywood, one that's rarely been tended to. It smells of popcorn, and yet there's sexy young people working here who you feel like in a Shakespearean way you could have if you looked at them hard enough. On the wall, there's portraits of stars past, stars never known to these generations of people. There's no Ryans or uh, Reeses or Jennifers on the wall here. There's Lupas and Panchitas. The stage is barren except for the presence of an overwhelming genius centered in the middle of it. The overawed crowd sits in breathless wonder. The urge to leave. Located centrally near a hostel where random Scandinavians have bizarre sodomy loudly at all hours of the night comedy karaoke night on most of the nights the Greg Proops Film Club has broadcasted. An old people's home next door and the cries of the disenfranchised and the bewildered can be heard moaning out in the night. Occasionally an errant cat or opossum will roll down the alley seeking battle with a coyote. We have much wildlife here that's inexplicable in Los Angeles. We do, however, have rats and coyotes, so we can celebrate Halloween any goddamn day you want. There's also crows hopping one-legged in front of canters each day, eating what's left of corned beef sandwiches out of the car park. That's the scene we're in here in Los Angeles. I understand that if you're in Missouri tonight, this is nothing compared to the comprehensive horror that envelops you. you walk down the street and it's an Applebee's and indeed horrifically in an obverse universe life is good there <laughs> then perhaps a P.F. Chang's to visit the ethnic neighborhood <laughs> then as you stroll on certainly a steak and shake because colon cancer is not for the weary you have to be vigilant I realize if you live in New York right now, there's a rat outside of your squalid apartment that you pay $2,800 a minute for <laughs> that has bars on the window and you can't get in the tub and turn the toaster on at the same time or the entire building's power goes out. <laughs> there's a giant rodent standing outside your building right now eating a white pizza with pesto. <laughs> arguing with it over other rodents in the street of various nationalities and configurations. Norwegian roof rats with humps that speak of fucking labor of thousands of years of jumping from fucking roof to roof across the tenements of New York. Their chipped teeth gnarled from too much opium chewing, battered from trying to get at babies and bassinets. They meet over the white pizza. Hey, Pizza Rat, what's up? Well, I've been had some hard luck lately. <laughs> Norwegian Pizza Rats speak like Sonia Henny's friend in all the ski movies from the 40s. The fact that you don't know who Sonia Henny is, notwithstanding, 
That joke, when later listened to by children in future generations, will be laughed at heartily <laughs> as they wipe a tear of disappointment from their eye. The show seems to have come to a bizarre crossroads, one where we're at odds. I want to keep talking, <laughs> but you seem to have drifted off to another realm. I'm joking, of course. I hear your gentle laughter out there. You honor me with moments of silence. <laughs> ah, the magic bottle. Sing, oh gods of funny. Down to the earth on this All Hallows Eve, 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 Eve. <laughs> Let your nectar run wild like Apollo's ejaculate over Europe. <laughs> Let your cheap gym crack lights that I have bought or have received it for my birthday come back on when their cheap gym crackery is once again, yes. Yes, someone went in a very LA way. There you go. <laughs> I know you were doing a bit, Greg, but your, your frantic emotions were harshing my mouth a little bit. I wanted to go back to LA, Lana. There you, there you go. No, just some, have some patience. Listen to a Marianne Williamson tape and really try to fucking focus a little, Greg. Uh, tonight's picture is an ethereal masterpiece, one that will leave you breathless um, and um, gasping for sucker on the shores of your own imagination. Uh, it was made in 1953, and uh, it's by Kenzo Mizuguchi, and it's called Ugetsu. Uh, it's a ghost story based on um, Akira uh, Vedas and Gita Mopassant, I almost said Gita Mopassant. Gita Mopassant had a cousin that wrote under <laughs> a nom de plume, and he was Gita Mopassant. I recently uh, was in an Eagles cover band called the Sneagles, and we played <laughs> Although it can happen uh, all over Los Angeles. Guy de Maupassant uh, had a, a writer who copied a lot of his stories, and this was one of them. Guy de Maupassant. It was a very subtle difference, and yet it wasn't lost on the French public. <laughs> Mizuguchi uh, is a master of the cinema, and you'll, of course, experience that tonight. I'm not going to talk about tonight's picture because... I don't want to spoil any of it for anybody. It's uh, an astounding picture. Rather, I'd like to talk about some of the people in it. And uh, rather than explain what you're about to do, why don't you just do it? Uh, Mizuguchi had a hot streak in the 50s with Ugetsu, a story from uh, Chikamatsu, Sanja the Bailiff, uh, New Tales of Terror Clown, Street of Shame, and Ronin. I'm forgetting another one in there. Ronin was from 47. Uh, he won the Venice Film Festival like three times running and uh, uh, was revered, I think, by other filmmakers. Goddard uh, said this. Goddard went to Kyoto uh, and laid flowers on Mizuguchi's grave. And he wrote, if poetry is manifest in each shot, each second film by Mizuguchi, it is because it is the instinctive reflection of the filmmaker's creative nobility. Um, and that's a fair assessment. However, he also thought that uh, Kurosawa cheated. I'm talking about Goddard um, because he edited films too much. So that'll give you an idea, exactly, of the aesthetic we're talking about here. Um, if you want to take over things in one long crane tracking shot that's going to take till the end of your soul's existence, then you've come to the right film tonight. 
Um, this is not a punchy CGI laden. There's no Jar Jar Binksian action in this movie at all. Uh, this movie goes with the organic feel of uh, the, the time period that it takes place in, in feudal Japan. And uh, Mizuguchi was uh, fantastically meticulous, over meticulous about every element of the movies. You'll find that the costumes, the pots, the pans, the sets are period. Uh, he insisted upon that. I think my favorite paragraph, uh, and by the way, what I'm reading from tonight is Philip Lepati's um, Criterion Selection, Harvard Film Archive, and the New York Review of Books. I blanged them all together. Jennifer curated all of this for me here. Um, the, uh, what, where is it? The paragraph that I love the most is, Mizuguchi was notorious as a tyrannical martinet. Now, we can all aspire to things in our lives. And a lot of you here in LA, I know, are trying to do whatever it is you're trying to do. You're trying to be creative or you're trying to destroy creative people's soul by being a producer. And <laughs> or whatever it is you want to do. You want to humiliate writers, so you went into the other end. Um, I'm joking, of course, but please maintain your sang-froid. By the way, this goes out all over the world, and um, you're as much responsible for this show as I am in a lot of ways. So I want you to know we're representing for the 323 here. And uh, uh, a lot of enthusiasm would behoove you, quite frankly. There's pe imagine people listening in Bulgaria tonight, uh, both of them, going like, uh, how come the LA crowd? I wish I was there. And they have um, vague uh, Scandinavian accents from an earlier joke that I did because that's how sad their lives are not to mention the people in Missouri who are listening from the bottom of a uh, a win a Dixie or whatever a Jitney jungle or some ghastly what's it called Kohler's yeah you know what I'm fucking talking about don't even fucking pretend no one's from here fuck you fuck you I can smell Indiana Mizuguchi was a t notorious as a tyrannical martinet. There's only two things I want to be notorious for in my life. One, I want to be notorious. And I don't mean in a Duran Duran way. Because Duran Duran does the notoriousness of their song by singing no, 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 and then notorious. You've already said no three times. People who are notorious don't say no. They say, I didn't even hear you. I was busy flying a jet into an orphanage. <laughs> to save everyone. See, there was a surprise ending on that one. If it was Mizuguchi, a woman would have sacrificed her life to raise the orphans and then they would have been killed at the end. Uh, tirelessly pushed actors, tirelessly pushed. That means he was manic as fuck. However, as my wife pointed out to me today, his shock of hair never desisted in any way. He only lived to be 50-something, but he had an enormous shock of white hair, and it was fantastic. Uh, screenwriters, set designers, and cinematographers alike to realize the ever-shifting images and ideas driving his films. Indeed, the naturalist performance, which remains one of the keys of Mizuguchi cinema, was legendarily derived from his uncompromising striving for the flickering essence of each scene, gesture, and line of dialogue, and his ability to ask a performer to ability I would say demanding quality, not an ability to, because when you hear what he is able to do, to ask a performer to repeat a line endlessly until it came out just right, that's not an ability, that's a demand. You know what I mean? An ability is like you can juggle with one hand or you can uh, walk a quarter. You know what I mean? That's an ability. You know what I mean? Right? Or you're good with flowers, right? Or dogs love you. That's an ability. 
right? You can make pudding like no one makes pudding. Like your banana pudding is to fucking die for and you don't even put vanilla wafers in it. That's an ability. Asking people to repeat lines endlessly is being a notorious tyrannical martinet. Billy Wilder evidently made Shirley MacLaine have a fucking heart attack during the apartment because she kept misplacing one word, one little uh, preposition or a comma or something, and he made her do the scene a million times. And frankly, that's torturing at a certain point, isn't it? I mean, but that's what directors do. Uh, when you hear about his life, you won't be surprised in any way. Uh, are you going to tell us about his life? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> let's see here. Much of it's been lost, dee, 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 dee. Um, He grew up in, uh, uh, it was born in the 19th century in Japan. And um, his dad tried to corner the market on like raincoats during the Japanese-Russian war. The war ended early and uh, his family hit hard times. So they sold his sister into a geisha house, something that he never recovered from. However, later, the sister uh, <laughs> married a rich guy and Mizuguchi was happy to sort of live off her. Um, <laughs> he awesomely made uh, what we would call feminist movies now, but I think that determination of feminism as viewed through the lens of the era he grew up through and the period that he often chooses, uh, chose for his uh, pictures uh, would be uh, different in so much as it's almost always a woman sacrificing everything she has for a man. Uh, and you'll see it in this picture as well. Um, he, uh, he, Hayden, uh, Hadrian, who you saw before the show, I often call him Hayden, and uh, I wanted to clear things up just there. It was Hadrian, who, uh, this is Hadrian's uh, uh, bailiwick here. And they're showing a 13-hour movie coming up uh, for the film fans out there uh, that simply don't care anymore about <laughs> attending to their person or her, their lives or any emotional connections they have with the world. <laughs> I love movies. 13 hours of one movie? I'd better have me in it. <laughs> if you know what I mean, you gotta keep my attention. Uh, a jealous mistress who worked as a call girl once slashed his back with a razor. And this is the story that Hadrian told me. And he said he would lift up his shirt to people and go, until a woman has done this to you, you don't know women. <laughs> He felt so strongly about the awful fate of most women in the pleasure districts that he once, I love how they're pleasure districts. Do you think a man named that? <laughs> I mean, we call uh, 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 prostitutes camp followers and uh, 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 what's the other one? Pleasure girls, comfort girls. Um, really? Men did that. We should stop saying that. We should stop saying pleasure district and red light district and stuff like that. And we should say male imperative, weird, bizarre, sexual domination and cultural, uh, yeah, economic situation district. If women were equal to men, that wouldn't exist. And the crowd goes quiet and a bunch of guys go, it's the oldest profession. Yeah, because you were there, douchebag, with your fucking greasy mitts. That's why you live here, where there's no fucking morals in Gomorrah, okay? Don't even fool yourself. Fuck you. Really? Uh... The sudden descent of his madness, into madness of his first wife, Mizuguchi, who was com he committed to an asylum and then began to live with her younger sister and young children. Oh, his story's fucking good. 
Having said all of that, uh, he's a genius of the highest caliber. And uh, this picture is unforgettable in a lot of ways. A short note on um, the actress who you'll see in this movie is the wife, Kanuyu Tanaka. Uh, Kanuyu Tanaka, uh, by the way, there's a documentary about Mizuguchi and a documentary about Kanuyu Tanaka, which I urge you to watch. Um, Today, we mostly know about the great Japanese star Kanuya Tanaka for her ability to disappear into roles as Ugatsu in The Ballad of Narayama. In the late 40s, she was a personality off-screen, serving as Japan's first post-war goodwill ambassador to the United States. In October 49, she went on a three-month tour of Hawaii, California, and Points East, and you can imagine the reception she got in Hawaii in 1949, a Japanese star. Um, so she met uh, Robert Mitchum, Maureen O'Hara, was strangely mentioned, and Betty Davis, and she was supposed to be the Betty Davis of Japan, and Betty Davis said, I am the Kanura Tanaka of America. Uh, and so uh, she went on to direct a bunch of movies. She directed six movies, including uh, Love Under the Crucifix, Girl of Dark, The Wandering Princess, Chiposo Yo Ellen Nare, Suki Nuburino, and Love Letter. Um, and she's a very worthy uh, <clears throat> and exciting uh, woman in film uh, who gets kind of skimmed over. Uh, you look for her as the wife in this picture tonight. Uh, and now I give you, uh, if you're ready to handle it, a journey into a world where you won't know who's alive and who's already gone on to the other realm. Because this is where this world meets the other. In Mizuguchi's, Mizuguchi, in Mizuguchi, this is where the other world <laughs> envelops our world. And in an unbelievable purple shroud, we find ourselves on the middle of a lake. And unbeknownst to us, life as we know it has ended and another life has beginned. <laughs> I'm not going to get it out. Mizuguchi's 1953 classic, Ugetsu. What an astounding picture. Uh, so many scenes in it are unforgettable. The scene on the lake, of course. Um, the, the, uh, the scene when um, she is, is singing the song and the, the dad's armor is making that bizarre <laughs> noise. Um, uh, it's a profound meditation on so many things. Uh, bizarrely uplifting at the end. And uh, a call to Buddhism. Uh, <laughs> thank you. I thought I'd break the tension. Not a lot of laughs in that picture. Uh, uh, super ooky and uh, supernatural in a zillion different ways. And um, uh, very exciting. It, does anyone want to say anything about it? Otherwise, we'll, uh, I'll let you push off into this good night. I think that picture is fairly profound, and uh, I don't want to besmirch it with my uh, flaccid thoughts uh, at the end of this. Robbo's there, though, if anyone does want to. No? Oh no, everyone's quiet and contemplative, except for you, Honeycomb Hideout. I think it's very important for us to see this right now with everything going on in everybody's lives. So I uh, couldn't agree more. Yeah, it really hit a good spot for me, importance. Particularly with the state of things and the, the state of the world and uh, that the world is in chaos and war right now. And it's a very um, plain and um, a profound look at uh, what's going on and the reality of that. I'm always talking about it in my other podcast um, because I'm a pacifist and a peacenik and uh, people are always rushing to war and wanting to make wars and uh, we're having an election right now and people will get on TV and go, we should have a war with Iran or we should have another war. And understanding that at the basic level, that's what war is. Um, it's a horrible loss and, um, and terrible 
privation and uh, and rape and murder and children starving and uh, and it's not anything else and uh, only rich people and Dick Cheney enjoy it uh, in the vaulted horrible uh, caverns of their uh, fortress of richitude that they live in uh, because that's the only people who profit from war in, in my estimation now we might have a couple of Trump people in here tonight um, I'm joking of course uh, <laughs> Uh, it's always rich people who want you to go to war. Uh, poor people don't get together and go, we should fucking have a war. Um, because we're going to make a lot of money off this. Uh, but rich people always think it's a good idea. And uh, you'll notice at the end, um, uh, in, uh, irony upon irony upon irony, not only was she still alive in spirit to guide her husband who was errant and never listened to her at any point throughout the entire movie, um, but that the army that killed her was the losing army. And they, they ended up on the on the winning side anyway, uh, even though she was killed by the other army. So uh, uh, yeah, there's pretty much everything uh, in here. And uh, Guida Maupassant and his cousin Guida Maupassant were not mentioned at all in the credits of this, uh, which I, I was thrilled to uh, have erroneously. No, uh, supposedly that story and the Aida story. Does anyone else want to say anything else? Otherwise, uh, I'll let you live. And uh, we'll be back in November. Um, uh, I don't know what picture we're going to show then. But uh, hopefully a groovy one. And thank you very much for joining us. I'm enormously gratified uh, in one way, in so much as uh, at Halloween time uh, here in Los Angeles when everyone is so busy and things are so crazy, uh, to get this many to people to come out and see a, a picture from 1953 uh, in black and white uh, on a Tuesday night is very exciting for me and uh, makes me feel like um, uh, film is still alive and that we can all still connect on that level. Thank you very much for coming out. This has been the Greg Cruz Film Talk. Cheers.